welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven and it's nice to have you all back again. There's been a little bit staccato over the summer, but then again, I think most people's summers have been interrupted one way or the other. And now we're back into the autumn again. Um, At least we can say we're going to be consistent in terms of the podcasting. So you're ever so welcome. Remember that you can uh, look out for it on Twitter. You can send me stuff on Twitter at Dave Niven or alternatively, of course, there's a website which is www.socialworldpodcast.com or, of course, you can download it from iTunes, Stitcher, Podfeed, all these different platforms. And there's also SpeakPipe, which is that terrific little kind of a recording device beside uh, the uh, podcast on the website that you can just one-click and you can send me a message. Please make it a nice one, but whatever, or ideas for the future. As usual... I've got a terrific guest, and today it's Donald Finlater, who is the Director of Research and Development at the Lucy Faithful Foundation. Now, welcome, Donald. Thank you, Dave. Okay, it's great to have you along, and I'm hoping that we're going to start by asking you just to give a little bit of a background to the Lucy Faithful Foundation, what it is, when it was set up, what the actual kind of construction of the the foundation was. And then we'll talk some more specifics. So how how did it all start, Donald? Okay, so how did it all start? Well, before my time um, with the with the foundation. So the Lucy Faithful uh, Foundation grew out of the ashes of Gracewell Clinic. Um, people might recall Gracewell Clinic um, was a residential treatment assessment and treatment program for, for sex offenders against children, we might call them paedophiles, run by Ray Wire and Hilary Eldridge and Jenny Still and colleagues. Um, and when when Gracewell Clinic closed um, through to local public opposition um, in kind of 1991, um, Lucy Faithful, who was a director of children's services by history, um, she insisted that the work had to go on and therefore was keen that an organization would be set up to 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 redevelop that residential treatment program but in the meantime also to do training work and and other non-residential work with sex offenders uh, who who are offended against victims uh, who are children but also to work with children and families as well so so that was its early days 1992 i joined in 1995 to to set up the first residential sex offender treatment program that under Lucy Faithful's banner and that was the Wolvercote Clinic based in Epsom. Uh, I joined from the probation service and not a surprise many of the staff of Lucy Faithful Foundation are by background probation officers, some social workers, psychologists, uh, I've got a few police officers that work for me or ex-police officers that work for me um, and a few teachers but I'll explain where they come in mm-hmm. later on. So mm-hmm. so, so that, that history is kind of back in the early 90s. Um, so Wolvercote Clinic had a, a tremendous sort of kind of like kind of period of time from, from 95 to 2002. But unfortunately, again, we had to move and we couldn't move to our preferred uh, future site. Therefore, we closed. Uh, and then from then on, we've had no residential treatment programs here in the UK. Um, and my role has been to develop additional services um, based on learning from running those residential services. So the Stop It Now Prevention Helpline, the Stop It Now Prevention Campaigns, uh, Circles of Support and Accountability Projects. We developed services for internet offenders, um, and but also for families of internet offenders um, and additional services for victims. We ha- we've had projects we developed uh, and delivered for the Justice Board 
in a number of, of YOIs, working with young people with sexually harmful behaviours. And alongside of all of those, those kind of uh, those hard end sex offender pieces of work, we've done in parallel work with child victims, uh, work with adolescent victims, work with families, um, and increasingly going into schools to do prevention work with primary school kids, secondary school children, with the parents of those children, just so that we're contributing to the prevention story, as well as having a response after tragedy has happened. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that's, where, that's where we've come from, and that's been part of my journey. No, no, fine. It's such a spectrum of work that you're getting, you're getting involved with there. I mean, it's so it's not only, I mean, ultimately, I know that um, the foundation is there to prevent harm to children. That's its absolute imperative. But yep. in doing so, the different levels of work that you get involved with is quite broad. I mean, the, the whole kind of um, intervention strategies, the uh, forensic analysis, the forensic work that you do, the direct work you do with offenders, but also the campaigning. I mean, it's a surreal stretch. I mean, what's the sort of size of, of the foundation in terms of sort of personnel? What, what, how many people have you got working with you? Yeah, OK. Well, we're, we're not a large organisation. I mean, we're about 60 people uh, kind of kind of all told as regular members of staff. And then we have a, a group of, of people who work for us on a sessional basis. So I'm speaking to you from our Epsom office um, where the helpline, Stopping Now helpline is based here. We have kind of four operators on at a time. Typically, two of those operators are regular staff and two of the operators are sessional staff who just work for eight, 12 hours a week for us on a sessional basis. Um, and then I, because we deliver safe recruitment training for schools, for example, mm -hmm. um, that I deliver that training as do a couple of my regular staff here. One's an ex-police officer, one is, an ex, is, is a social worker by trade, but we also use sessional workers to deliver that safe recruitment training into schools. So, so we are 60 or so people um, as, as, as direct employees, but then we, you can bulk that out to probably more like 90 or 100 when you take into account the sessional mm -hmm. staff. And then add to that, because we've got circles of support and accountability projects, which use volunteers to work close quarters with known uh, high risk sex offenders. Then we've got about 50 or 60 of, of those volunteers working with with those offenders up and down the country okay. uh, at any one time. <laughs> so when we try and cover England, Wales, Scotland, a little bit into Northern Ireland, and then we're doing some exciting work um, over in Eastern Europe, East Africa and over into Australia uh, just for fun at the moment. And what about the afternoons? <laughs> yes, I know it's it's it's, it's manic, but it, look, it is it is using the knowledge, and actually, it, it is so. It's this is an exciting work, area to work in, partly because you've got all the tragedies of having to deal with it, but the possibilities of prevention are so enormous um, mm -hmm. that actually that 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 brewing them and and planting them and sharing them. And actually, and, and getting some pickup from from those, all those areas just is, is so positive that, you know, although day to day work can be pretty gruesome in its content, the, the momentum you can create out of it to, to you know, with, which offers the hope of prevention in the future. Mm -hmm. Yes, hope, preventing this offender from doing it again or preventing this victim from experiencing it again, but also hopefully preventing some people never becoming offenders, some children never becoming victims because of those interventions. So, you know, we can't, you can't measure that in terms of, 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 the, of the benefits and the, and the positive feeling it gives the staff to be doing that work. Mm. No, I mean, it, it's slightly um, 
cloudy. I do understand that because of the very nature of it and how to measure success and so forth. And we'll come to that maybe in a minute. But my understanding is that what you're trying to promulgate is both um, social control, self-control, um, prevention and education. They, these seem to be the headings that are coming through for me. Is that a fair assessment? That's no, that's very good. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, for those with a potential to risk, there, there is something about developmental prevention as well, I guess, would be important to include. Um, because, well, for example, I, you know, I'm very kind of passionate currently about the need for children and young people to have decent relationships and sex education um, in, in, their, in their school environments, but ideally also started from home. Um, now, now, so that's and because th th that is 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 partly about reducing vulnerabilities going forward. But also, it's intriguing for me that you know one of the key components of 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 work that it, that we do and that others do with sex offenders, um, whether they're young people with harmful sexual behaviours, whether they're adults, is they give them decent relationships and sex education after they've offended. Well, if they'd had it before they've offended, it might have helped some of them never offend mm -hmm. in the first place. So so there's some mm -hmm. developmental prevention um, for potential offenders, but also for, for, for children to help them not be victims, um, but also some just some basic public education. You know, we're, the, unfortunately, the headlines on most of our newspapers and that, that, that comes from the lips of our politicians typically tend to kind of worry us and scare us and make the, the, the issue of sex offending seem so remote and so distant from us. And yet we also know the biggest risks to children are from, from people they know, they know well, mostly within their home or with all people that visit their home. So, so whilst the, the daily kind of, kind of like media dialogue seems to be about stranger danger, actually the risk to children is mostly within the home and it's not strangers, it's friends and family. And therefore we have to get that message loud and clear to parents, to grandparents, to neighbours, to teachers, to people in faith communities, so that they recognise not bizarre people behaving in bizarre ways, but actually recognising someone they know they care about who might actually be behaving in, a, in, a, in an odd way that needs some intervention. Yeah, I mean, one of the messages, I know it's a generalisation, but it always seems to encapsulate it for me to try and get across, uh, and I suspect that you would agree with this, but you can tell me yes or no, is that child safety should be as much a part of family life as road safety. In other words, it's important, but it needn't be smothering. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think, and I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think people worry, uh, and, and I know we get people phoning the stop in their helpline, um, uh, parents, for example, asking, how do I begin a conversation with my child? Because I really don't want to spoil their innocence. Mm. Um, well, we don't need to spoil the innocence of childhood by giving them decent relation, de de decent information about it's not nice to be punched or pinched or hit, and it's not nice to punch or pinch and hit. And if you do that, you need to apologise and you need to tell an adult. Well, some of that same story goes to what issues of privacy and your kind of and, your, and boundaries that you should be able to keep. Um, so you shouldn't expect other people to fiddle with you in your pants, and you shouldn't fiddle with them with them in their pants either. And if any of that happens, you should tell an adult. It just feels like you don't need to make such a drama out of it to actually just sow some important early seeds that actually that means that children are clearer and they're safer. Because I know, having worked with lots of sex offenders, they 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 exploit vulnerability. If if a child doesn't understand some basic body safety rules and some basic understanding that people shouldn't touch you there, 
then if they know that parents don't talk about this stuff, whereas this person that, that, that wants to touch me there is prepared to, then, then that child is more vulnerable than they need to be. So it's just in very mm. ordinary, everyday ways, we can make a big difference as to whether children are safer or not. One of the biggest kind of inter-family kind of um, activities these days, or, or activities within the family, I should say, it involves technology. Yeah. And the internet and ch children's access to it, the platforms that, they're, that are available to them and the supervision issues to do, you know, with parental supervision, etc. But it always struck me that um, the people who provide pornography, uh, apart from those that actually directly prey on children, um, are just as culpable sometimes, and therefore it surprised me, and I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts were, that Simon Bailey, who's a Chief Constable of Norfolk and has a child sexual abuse brief for the Association yeah. of Chief Police Officers, said recently that there were about 50,000, in his opinion, what he called non-contact offenders in the UK, uh, who, you know, typically just sort of sat up in their bedrooms, and mainly men, and downloaded child pornography, but um, swore blind that they never touched a child and swore blind that they never would, but just actually enjoyed downloading and watching child pornography. And in his view, they should be exclusively referred to the health service for therapeutic support as opposed to being taken through the criminal justice system. Now, I, d I disagreed with them about that, but I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts were. Look, and, and I'm aware of that number. You mentioned 50,000 as an estimate that uh, that was put together by uh, CEOP, Child Exploitation Online Protection Centre, I think back in 2012, 2013. Um, and, and, and I think, I think Simon, Simon Bailey kind of pr clearly prompted a debate, which was an important one to have about whether there are and in, to what extent there are mental health needs uh, that need to be serviced um, by mental health professionals to those who, who have a, a, a frequent or, a, or, or less frequent sexual interest in children. And I think that's an important debate to have. I think the other issue that you're raising is how directly dangerous are that 50,000 mm. or yeah. how many there are. Yeah. And, and in my experience, uh, working with, with, with in this area of kind of child pornography viewers, uh, rather than the groomers or the or the or those who are directly involved in taking the images in the first place, those who view and distribute images potentially through file sharing technology, my experience is, the, whilst the majority of them are not directly dangerous to children, um, a proportion of them most certainly are, and some of them will already have committed a contact sexual event mm -hmm. at the point that they're looking at images online. So, so there is no one problem and there's no one solution, um, but we and we need to recognise that. Um, and but but also re retain some common sense about it uh, and understand the journeys that some people are making. Can I just kind of clarify mm, some, some individuals that 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 are accessing and we've worked uh, for in the last um, kind of seven, eight years, we've developed a, a, a intervention program for child pornography uh, viewers. Um, say not groomers, not contact offenders, um, and, and we've worked with about 13, 1400 individuals, and you're right, nearly all men on that basis, adult males um, in that space. What we found out is not only the journeys that they made to get to that material, and most of them were, did not have a prior sexual interest in children, um, they had a prior heavy sexual interest in adult content, adult sexual material online, and after three, four, five years of using that adult sexual material, 
the internet, unlike magazines, typically the internet facilitates you doing a journey beyond what you can see now to seeing something else. And it will serve up child pornography if you if you follow enough links to find it. Mm. So so a significant proportion of these these 1300 or so we've worked with had followed those links, uh, had, had had been curious and interested and then got stuck. And there's no excusing their behavior. That doesn't necessarily tell me that they were they were a paedophile beforehand, nor indeed that they're directly dangerous to children afterwards. But left to time, left to consuming that material, they will become more dangerous, is my belief. So mm -hmm. we have to deal with this problem urgently and we have to take the, the potential risk seriously, but recognise some of them will be great fathers and, and great partners. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and we mustn't overshadow that and unnecessarily wrench people from their family homes unless we can demonstrate that they are a direct risk. OK, I mean, taking that, I mean, and I get you what you were saying, it's not easy and it's not straightforward and there's no such thing as a linear solution to these things. Yep. However, one aspect of it that always struck me is that supply and demand. The very fact that these men are downloading that material is creating a demand for it, is maintaining a demand for it, which is being um, satisfied uh, elsewhere, sometimes by organised crime, we know, and sometimes yep. by, you know, other individuals on the make. And that involves abusing children. And so the very fact that these men are downloading that, they are maintaining the demand and therefore the supply will mean will continue. So inadvertent, well, not even inadvertently, indirectly, maybe they are causing more children to be abused than may well have been if the demand wasn't there. And so I personally feel they are uh, culpable in abusing children, even though they're not actually, or so they say, all of them touching children. Um, and, I, and I think that's where my feeling about Simon Bailey's stuff went wrong. Well, look, can I, well, this is kind of pertinent to a, a, a campaign that we're starting off tomorrow. So I'm speaking to you on Monday. <laughs> I was trying uh, to lead into that a little so, bit, Donald. So, so we have tell, us, tell us about it. Tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we got this 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 a campaign that we of the scale of which we've not tried before. So we'll see how this goes. But entirely on on your premise that actually we have to do something about reducing demand. We have to do something that actually ultimately has an impact on the ultimate the amount of supply and therefore the number of children who are sexually victimised. Um, on, on, and so we have to do, do do that. And we have a campaign launching tomorrow. We have films that are being launched um, at, across the nation. We've got kind of kind of spots on kind of media, uh, kind of BBC, uh, kind of local uh, and national TV and radio. Um, and and the, 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 the films are basically kind of statements to those who, who already are consuming child pornography or those who, who aren't yet but might do tomorrow. Mm. It's to say there are no justifications. Any sexual image of someone under 18 is illegal and viewing it is breaking the law. The consequences of breaking the law and getting caught are dire and you wouldn't really want to face them uh, in terms of losing family, losing contact with your children, mm. likely losing your job, potentially going to prison. So there are monstrous consequences on you if you get caught, but also on your family, your relationships. They lose out massively as well. And if you have already started and you are struggling to stop accessing this, this material, then there is help to stop. 
and that that help can be accessed confidentially. It's on the Stop It Now helpline, and we just re revitalised uh, our, our our self help resources on on alongside of that 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 helpline, so that people can access self help confidentially and completely anonymously. They can access a helpline again confidentially and anonymously. And if you're also, but their parents or their partner um, who are, might be worried about their online behaviour, they also can access support and help. So this is trying to to create a, a public discussion mm -hmm. about the problem and about the fact of so many people viewing child abuse images online and trying to say, look, there's something all of us can do about this. Um, some of some of your friends and family will be viewing. Some of you need to worry about your friends and family then and get help and get advice in order to stop this behavior in its tracks and get help in doing that stopping activity. So ultimately, I intend, intend and anticipate that we'll see an overall reduction in total numbers viewing indecent images of children online across the UK. And hopefully that is, there's some lessons from there that we can share with the rest of the world. Oh, that's good. It's a real positive campaign. Obviously, I wish it well. Now, before the end of this uh, programme, um, can you, you can give some details of, of numbers and yep. contact details and so forth. And we'll obviously we'll put it into the text on the podcast site as well on, on the website in terms of who you know, who you can contact and the things you've just described as well. How long, do, I mean, the campaign, I'm sure, will will kind of have a long life, but in terms of its initial its initial phase, how long is it? Is it this week uh, particularly? or, or Okay. It... So, so look, we, 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 the, the plan is, this is kind of news, news time tomorrow. We need to create the, a, a big visibility quickly uh, to create a bit of a murmur in the public in the, in, in the in the wider community so so that that's the plan to make a, a bit of a noise and song and dance about it tomorrow but then beyond tomorrow we've got plans over the next six months uh, for for, okay, for, good. for for pieces in 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 glossy magazines in online journals um, so a range of 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 ways of sustaining the messaging, um, alongside of which um, we we've had a for the last 12 months, 18 months, we've been sending messages with support from Google, by the way, uh, and the ISPs. Been sending messages to people doing dubious online searches. So if you were to type kind of teenage sex pics uh, as a Google search, for example, you would get a message telling you that sex that 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 sexual images of children are illegal. And this is where you can get help. Well, so we're, we're continuing that and we're beefing up that strategy for sending messages to, to everyday viewers of, of, of kind of, of on, the, on the Internet who might be doing do, doing strange or un, unwise searches or might indeed be, be ch checking out a, a, a website address that we would know would host child pornography, in which case we'd say, this 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 website hosts child pornography. This possessing this material is illegal, um, and this is where you can get help. Good. So, so we've got a, a, a kind of a news story, feature pieces over the next six months, as well as a day-to-day -day interaction with people that, that that might be doing things online that would be unwise if not illegal. Okay, right. Let's clarify a few things for 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 the listeners because this is being recorded on the twelfth of October. Yep. Um, technical stuff being what it is we'll probably this will probably be published this podcast in within the next sort of two or three days right um and therefore you know the launch will have happened however the six month 
period sounds substantial and I think it would be a good idea to have you back on the programme in four months or something of that kind and sort of say, how's it going, Donald? I mean, I think that's good. But but one of the things I suspect is going to be very difficult for you, and this is almost going full circle back to a, a bit that you were talking about in your introduction, is how do you measure success? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not an easy area of work to count, like, you know, making widgets or something like that and just counting them up. Or, it, you know, it's very, very difficult. Now, I, I totally understand that. But what thoughts have you uh, in terms of how you might try and measure its impact? Okay, so, so so a number of things, and you're absolutely right. It's kind of measuring prevention, measuring that you've you've prevented something from happening. When when actually across the the globe, we don't have good ways of measuring even the incidence of child mm. sexual abuse mm. um, is is troublesome. But but then we can take some interim measures. So so for example, with the campaign that we're launching tomorrow, um, of course we'll be we'll be kind of counting the the volume of calls to the Stopping Now helpline from the target groups that that we're promoting in the campaign, so that we can show whether we've had increased volumes of calls or not over the next six months. Alongside of that. With this, the, with the online kind of self-help resources, we've got means of measuring the, the the amount of engagement with those self-help resources. Indeed, the number of pages viewed by everyone visiting those self-help resources, so we can see whether people are coming and whether they're viewing enough pages or not, and actually going through that 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 self self-treatment journey that we provided online. Mm-hmm. Alongside of that, um, there'll be some some anonymous uh, questionnaires. That are being that the that, that National Centre for Social Research and Ipsos More uh, will be working with uh, kind of w- with us on, so that we can people that call the Stop and Now helpline confidentially can then can be separately asked a, a series of questions that don't implicate them in getting identified, but in, implicate them in giving answers that can help us explain the journey that they've been on and whether we've been instrumental in keeping a child safe. So we're bringing a number of different features together that in combination ought to tell us whether this has been a, an effective strategy um, and effective for who, um, as well as we'll be talking to the police about what about the changes in this in the terrain that they're seeing. Um, we clearly couldn't have developed this terrain, uh, this sorry, this campaign without close involvement with 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 CEOP, with uh, with the with, with the National uh, Police Chiefs Council. Um, so a range of, of people um, that will give us their perception of of, of arresting people going forward uh, and whether we've made any any perceivable difference uh, to the, the, the business of law enforcement and indeed the business of social care going forward as well. Okay. Right. Well, like I said, we're going to, uh, if you will, come back on the programme and talk about how things are developing. That's, that's um, something to look forward to. And I really do think that by the sound of it and by the impact that you have and the way that Lucy Faithful is regarded, if you like, within the whole community, uh, or certainly the professional community, that um, you should have a measure of success, all things being equal. I wonder one thing, though, just just a couple of little contemporary issues that I wouldn't mind hearing what you're thinking about. Yeah. There's there's always been the occasional kind of backlash when you think about victims of abuse coming forward and people thinking that um, the authorities are being just a bit too um, strident and just a bit too, well, believe the victim too quickly and poor people getting accused um, wrongly or to, you know, whatever. And there's been a couple of well-publicized cases of very, very well-known public figures, yeah. uh, etc. I mean, 
Do you feel that there's uh, an imbalance here? Or is this just the way of it that you will always get from time to time a bit of a backlash and then we just move forward again? It's interesting. You're, you're right. I mean, I think uh, that, that, that the, the, the last kind of kind of few weeks have have seen some turmoil and some sort of almost like about facing going on uh, that that, that uh, uh, reacting to how, how the story is being being uh, deployed. Look, I, I think victims need to always feel that that they will get a serious listening to. They'll be taken seriously, and any complaints or concerns they have will be thoroughly and, and professionally investigated. But equally, those those complained against need to equally expect a professional response from those tasked with investigating any alleged crime. Mm. And, and, and that that requires those professionals in the middle of all of that to behave impeccably. And that that that's a struggle and a challenge. And as, as with with workforce kind of movement going on, that, that sometimes there's not the expertise I'd love to see available routinely, um, both to investigate the crime, but also to to properly uh, kind of respond to the needs of victims and survivors of abuse. So it will always be a bit of a dilemma. I think it's also all this this dilemma exists within the the the, 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 the context of media and political speak about things which tend to, to kind of veer to the extremes rather than actually take a kind of a balanced kind of common sense line that is clear that abuse is abuse and that abuse harms children and that people who do it ought to be held accountable and that we ought to stop it where we can. So I think there, there needs to be some very level dialogue at a political and a media level uh, that will support police, social workers and others do a professional job at the front line. Yeah. There, there seems to be a head of steam. And, and I don't know, maybe it's just me just picking up the kind of vibes, you know, um, but more so than there has been maybe in the past to look at actually making um, either a legal uh, situation or whatever where people are not named until charges are laid. How do you feel about that? Oh, massive dilemma uh, about this, uh, because I'm absolutely aware we've done a number of investigations into abuse in residential care and other settings where it was the fact of 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 the public visibility of one complainant that encouraged others who'd suffered in similar ways to come forward and and feel the confidence to actually that they will now going to be taken more seriously because mm. because we know abuse kind of has a massive impact for many on their self-esteem on their self-confidence and on their on, and and abusers will often tell people that they won't be taken seriously or won't be believed so so there's every reason for many victims of, of past abuse to actually to not fail to come forward therefore we have to remove all those obstacles where we possibly can but at the same time, of course, there is a small, circumstance, a small set of circumstances where, where for whatever reason, um, whether through uh, through lack of wisdom, whether through some kind of priming or through mischief, but frankly, for reasons that, that you know that too many to actually mention, sometimes allegations will be about the wrong person or the wrong context, um, or will actually occasionally be malicious. Um, and how you then, how the police then sort that bit out at the point of investigation 
is is a is a nightmare for them to to resolve. So, do you what stage you name? I think I think becomes a dilemma, and and I think in a way, I think getting it back into the a court arena, and at that stage, kind of one or two things more being being expressly uh, decided through the court, that court process seems to me a kind of a probably a fairly wise way to go. Yeah, but I I, I get you. I, I mean, I'm not aware of any work being done on this. Are you? I mean, you know, of any any kind of specific analysis with a view to a kind of some kind of definitive outcome or or advancement in terms of our thinking or whatever. I'm 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 just aware of the of the, the two sides of the coin. Is it? Well, yeah, yeah, and you're right. But I mean, except alongside of, I mean, clearly the CPS and the Home Office currently are working on again improving arrangements for 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 the, for for child witnesses and for victims of sexual abuse to actually be be better handled by the whole investigating and court mm. process so alongside of that i'd have thought these kind of dilemmas ought to be part of that package of work being done by those organizations okay a final couple of things because we, we've got to look at the time here but it's been good talking to you donald I, I i want to ask a little bit just quickly if i might you mentioned right at the very beginning there about the the extreme dearth of any kind of residential facilities for yep. um uh, working with offenders in order to um maintain their abstinence from offending yep. um models from abroad that you're impressed with have you come across so much well, not a not a lot from abroad. It's, it's fair. One of the projects I'm currently working on is looking across the globe at examples of good practice with sex offenders, with victims, with, in prevention work, uh, with organisations. So, so collecting all those examples together, there's very little residential work apart from in kind of the faith communities. So you can imagine kind of residential work going on with the, by the Catholic Church in in in, in America, uh, in Canada, uh, and some parallel work going on in, in Australia. There is, by the way, you know, some very good examples of residential work going on with young people with sexually harmful behaviour. What we don't then see see is is some parallel provision uh, for adult sex offenders as as gracewell clinic and as wolvercloak clinic previously were so so i i do think it's a it, these are services to come back to look at because then the, the intensity and the level of impact one can have um, within a residential provision is far greater than we can achieve on kind of almost like day release courses uh, run by probation and other services that's not to gainsay them for a second, but there are some sex offenders who are so entrenched that they need a, 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 an immersion in, in, in very in-depth work over an intensive period of time and in a way that can't be simply achieved in prison, because that clearly is an alternative. You know, well, are we locking these people up for long enough? And what about doing that work in prison? Prisons are not a particularly therapeutic environment to do very good work in. I think staff there try enormously hard to do the best they can, but but the but the institution unfortunately has lots of kind of competing elements within it that mean that you can't quite kind of pull off the, all the change you'd like to. So so hmm. so no, there aren't that many good models. Um, that that but but there are still the model that we had in Wolverco Clinic that is is sat in in volumes of, of, of text on my bookshelves available for the next person who wants to develop that kind of service somewhere across the UK or, or indeed across Europe. I hope it's not one of these ones set in amber, the archaeologists of the future discovery. <laughs> um, 
This final question, because I mean, you know, I, I, I appreciate it. it's a huge, it's a huge subject, but you, you, you may be aware, you, well, I think you are, because I talked to you about it, that I chair a couple of safeguarding children boards. Yes. And to my view, they're fairly pivotal in terms of the, the choreography of child protection within the professional communities that they serve. Yes. Um, what um, benefit could greater links with Lucy Faithful give, do you think, to safeguarding boards, possibly taking from examples or um, experience you've had already? I, I don't know. Have, have you any thoughts on that? Uh, y yes, I do. I mean, and, and I absolutely agree that that that, that safeguarding boards, uh, local safeguarding children boards are pivotal to safeguarding of children at a local level. I fear that the that 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 big, partly because of, 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 you know, where priorities lie and that child sex abuse uh, has not been identified as a as as as. As, as, a, as a significant cause for registering most children on uh, kind of kind of putting on a child protection plan therefore I think skills in identifying responding to such children um, are, are kind of more limited than I would like to see uh, um, I think we'll see us there'll be a sea change coming um, because we've seen changes as a consequence of the of the investigations to child sexual exploitation mm -hmm. um, and and have been having imperatives uh, required of safeguarding boards because of that exploitation story. Well, in November this year, we're going to see the Office for the Children Commissioner reminding us that the vast vast majority of children sexually abused in the UK are abused within the home and within the extended family, and the, and the, and the, then then that is going to require safeguarding boards and children's social care. To, to to respond to that demand for actually doing best, providing better services at a local level. I mm -hmm. think how we can help the boards um, is because because we bring a kind of a, a comprehensive sexual abuse prevention framework that not only helps to work with victims and work with offenders after abuse, but also organizes the kind of things that we need to be doing to prevent abuse in the first place. How do we reduce vulnerabilities in children so that they're not abused? How do we, we, we reduce the likelihood of, of, of a bunch of young boys or teenage boys going on to be perpetrators? How do we create safety in situations, whether that's in schools, in faith communities, in swimming pools, wherever? So we have structures for doing all, creating all these safety environments. And, and I think we can help safeguarding boards by offering that comprehensive framework with examples of what that looks like in practice. That's what I've been doing the last three weeks over in Latvia um, and also in Bulgaria and and and, and a little bit into Romania. Um, and, and I think it seems strange not to be doing that comprehensive prevention mm -hmm. framework work back here in the UK. I think, thanks, yeah. I think you're right. But, but I mean, the boards that I'm aware of do now have quite a head of steam when it comes to child sexual abuse. But you're probably right in the sense that there's never going to be enough uh, uh, um, experience and there's never going to be enough education and there's never going to be enough resources when it comes to, as you say, where the actual kind of um, the main numbers of children who are sexually abused take place within, uh, and that's within the home. I mean, I think people are aware of that, but they're always going to need further experience and further information and further input from places like Lucy Faithful. So, Donald Finlater, thank you very much indeed for joining us today, and I hope we can talk to you again soon. Um, in, well, in the not, like I said, in the not too distant future. It's been a great pleasure, David, and thank you ever so much for having me. And I look forward to four or five months' time. Thank you.